series entitled uh, The Children of Abraham, A Legacy of Faith. Uh, we're working our way through uh, the balance of Genesis chapter 37 this morning. And uh, it's the account of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. And I'm going to give you just kind of the main points right up front so you know where we're going. Uh, and uh, they're also going to be on the big screen. And what we're going to learn actually today, I hope today, is that uh, this passage teaches us that the faithful seek to obey I think it's God regardless of the risk, that evil seeks to destroy regardless of the cost, and that God's goodness and purposes remain in spite of evil and suffering. So that's where we're headed this morning. In order to get started, I want to take you back uh, to January 15th. 2016, uh, to the West African country of Burkina Faso, on that Friday night in the capital city of Ouagadougou, I think I pronounced that close to right, a 45-year-old uh, American missionary by the name of Mike <coughs> Rittering had stopped at the Cappuccino Cafe uh, with a, a, a pastor friend of his. They were going to pick up some uh, American missionaries at the airport. They were early uh, to pick these folks up, so they decided that they would stop at this uh, cappuccino cafe. Uh, they had, uh, just days earlier, Mike had completed his work with a missions team from Messiah College uh, that was led by Living Water's own Dr. Angela Hare. And that same evening, uh, Angela's team was in the capital city. They were preparing for the next day to ultimately leave to come back to the United States. And so they were dining just about two or three uh, blocks away from where Mike and his pastor friend were. Now, five years earlier, Mike and his wife Amy had sold their Florida bulk building business and uh, moved to Africa with their daughter to care for 400 orphan children and also to provide direct uh, assistance to uh, disenfranchised widows. And it was their, their desire not to simply be uh, committed Christians, but they, they ultimately wanted to be submitted Christians, that they were fully submitted to whatever God would have them do. Now, surrounded by scores of other patrons that evening, Mike and his friend, Pastor Valentin, uh, they were relaxed at this outdoor cafe. They're talking, and in the midst of their conversation, uh, the pleasant evening was interrupted by automatic machine gun fire. Uh, it tore through the Cappuccino Cafe. They were out at Lake Terrace. When the gunfire ceased, 28 people had been killed. Mike was one of them. I want you to think about this for a moment. I want you to think about Mike's wife, Amy. She and Mike and their daughter left the affluence and the safety of Southern Florida and faithfully followed God's call on their life. For five years, they joyfully sacrificed and served hundreds of orphans and, and scores of widows in order to live out the gospel. And now an unimaginable evil has invaded her life. It's taken the life of her husband. Overwhelming sorrow has been now poured out on her kids. And it would be easy to cry out to God and demand answers. God, why didn't you allow this to happen? Why didn't you stop it? How could you possibly have let Mike die? God, we have faithfully followed you in order to care for widows and orphans. And now I'm a widow. And now my daughter and my two adopted kids are also orphans. God, I just don't understand. And while certainly those thoughts and questions course through Amy's mind, this is what Amy wrote just a few days after Mike's death. Heaven has gained a warrior. I know God has a purpose in all things, but sometimes it is a complete mystery to me. My best friend, my partner in crime, and the love of my life, the best husband ever has been taken from me. An amazing father to his children and a papa to everyone. My heart is so heavy, I'm having trouble believing he's gone. Mike was an example of the way that he lived and loved. God be glorified, Mike Rittering. I will always love you, 
you left quite a legacy here. I can only imagine the adventures you were having now. And folks, if that would have happened to one of us, it would have been so easy in the midst of one's grief and loss to pack your bags, gather your kids, leave behind the ministry, and return to the safety of America and never, ever, ever look back. But instead, Amy never left the mission field. And at this very moment, she continues to serve in that ministry. And brothers and sisters, if we live on this earth long enough, there will come a time that, that, that evil will invade our lives, and with that evil, it will bring unimaginable suffering. That evil might come in the form of, of betrayal, abuse, perhaps violence, maybe the carelessness or perhaps the vindictiveness of, of another person. It could be a, a disease like cancer or an addiction that, that seeks to steal your life. Could be one of, of a thousand other horrific things that happen as a result of, of living in this broken world. And when that happens, many of us are going to, to struggle with some very difficult questions. Where's God? Why is He allowing this to happen to me? Is God not loving enough or, or not powerful enough to actually stop this? What am I supposed to do? How am I going to survive? Is there any hope? And it's my desire this morning that we're going to find some answers to a couple of those questions. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. We're going to start in verse 12, go to the end of the chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. If you don't own a Bible, please take it with you. The only thing that we ask is you actually use the thing. And you use it not just one time. But you use it on a daily basis because the last time that I checked, Hebrews 4 tells us this, that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and that no creature, none of us, are hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 12. If you're able to stand, please do so in honor of God's word. Now his brothers, that would be Joseph's brothers, went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come and I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. And so he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him to him. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. When they saw him from afar and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, and their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And when Judah said to then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and in our own flesh.
And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes, returned to his brothers, and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe uh, of many colors and brought it to their father and said, We have, have found, this we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, put on sackcloth on his loins, warned of his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus the father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So here's the big idea for the morning. That God's goodness and his purposes stand even when evil inflicts suffering on the faithful. Folks, we live in a world where there is evil at every turn. Just on Friday, two women were killed just blocks away from two families that attend Living Water Community Church. This year, in our city, nine people have been murdered and dozens more have been wounded. Powerful men with the help of heartless female accomplices lure teenage girls into the sex trade. Drug dealers in search of the next dollar sell poison to drug addicts in search of the next high. Entire villages are slaughtered because of their religious beliefs. Huge corporations hide product flaws that endanger lives in order to maintain their profits. The rich take advantage of the poor. The poor take advantage of the poor. Those entrusted with positions of local and regional and state and national power exploit that power, betray the people's trust, and choose personal gain over the best interests of those who they vowed that they would serve. And sadly, pastors and priests and other religious leaders who were called to care for and lead God's people instead exploit them in unimaginable ways. And the Apostle Paul uh, warned us about this in the, his letter to the Christians living in Rome. Listen to how he describes the world. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. My favorite here, inventors of evil. Evil people invent even more evil. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, Ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That, brothers and sisters, was first century Rome. And that, brothers and sisters, is 21st century America. And it's into this world ravaged by sin, that we as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ are called not just to passively live, but to actively engage with a life-giving, hope-filled, grace-overflowing gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, when we obediently engage our world for the sake of the gospel, we are guaranteed to encounter evil. And when we encounter evil, we are going to know suffering. And when we experience suffering, we can be confident that God will not abandon us in the midst of that suffering. 
Let me show you exactly what that looks like. Look again at verses 12 through 14. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. And so he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. You see, the first thing that we learned from this passage that we read this morning is that faithful seek to obey God regardless of the risk. So here we have Joseph. We've learned that he's 17 years old. And we know that his brothers, uh, his older brothers, they revile him for a number of different reasons. Although he's the youngest, his father Jacob had, has made him as the firstborn because the firstborn Reuben had forfeited his rights as the firstborn because Reuben had slept with his father Jacob's concubine. Joseph's brothers were also upset because if you remember a little earlier in this chapter that he brought a, a bad report back to his dad when his brothers were, were shepherding the, the sheep in, in a field near their home. His brothers didn't like Joseph's dreams, dreams that clearly were from God, dreams that indicated that the older brothers were ultimately going to serve the younger brother. His brothers reviled him to the point that we're told in verse 4 of chapter 37, that they hated him, they could not speak peacefully to him. So given this, Joseph has every reason to want to avoid his brothers. There, there's no reason why he would want to possibly hang out with them. Yet, yet when his father commands him to go and check on his brothers and check on the flocks that, that are being pastured in Shechem, some 50 miles away from his home, he responds by saying, here I am. Now folks, this is huge. It's one thing for Joseph to, to head a mile or two away from the safety of dad to check on the brothers. That's not really a big deal. You go out there, you check on them, the brothers do something bad to you, dad's right there to come in and, and, and rescue you. But he's been called to go 50 miles away. And he's not driving there in a car that goes 60 miles an hour. He's either going there on his feet or on the back of a donkey. And he's going to be days away from the safety of dad. Anything can happen to him, yet he obeys because he's faithful. But that's not the half of it. When he gets to Shechem, his brothers are not there. Now, if that's me, I get to Shechem, I'm like, okay, my work here is done. I'm out of here, right? Yeah, they're, they're not here. Sorry they're not here. I'm heading home, Dad. I went to look for them, but they weren't where they were supposed to be. But that's not Joseph. Joseph actually asks where his brothers are. He finds out that they're in a town another 10 miles away, 10 more miles further from their dead. And he goes and he finds them. You see, what happens here is Joseph does this because he is faithful. And when people are faithful, they obey regardless of what the risks are. Let's face it, folks. Obeying God is not for the faith of heart. If you follow Jesus long enough, you will come to realize that there is no such thing as Christian safety. Living as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, plain and simple, was designed to be risky. When God called the, the Ritterings to the mission field, he called them to risk. When God calls us to, to seek reconciliation with an estranged family member, he's calling us to risk. When God prompts us to, to foster a child or to adopt a child, it's risky. It's not safe. I know that firsthand. When we've been living with our boyfriend or our girlfriend and God speaks into our heart and shows us what is best for us, when he, he calls us to, to 
to live a life of purity and obedience. And we know we got to go to that boyfriend or girlfriend and say we've got to move out. That's risky. We find ourselves in the midst of an addiction. And we know that the only way out is confession. And getting help. Going to rehab. Doing whatever it takes. That is risky. When we realize that we're living a greedy, self-centered, pseudo-Christian life. And God speaks into our hearts and calls us to live an authentic Christian life. A life that is marked with sacrifice and other-centeredness. And we obey. That's risky. See, brothers and sisters, obedience to God is never safe. It is always risky. And the sooner that we surrender to that truth, the better off we will be. Listen to the words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians living in the city of Philippi while he was sitting in a Roman prison. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by my life or by my death, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. Paul is writing those words from prison. His crime, obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason he's in prison is because he is telling people about the utter holiness of God. He is telling people about the utter sinfulness of humanity. He is speaking of the love and sacrifice and grace of Jesus Christ and the urgent need for people to repent of their sins and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. That is his crime. He's ultimately going to lose his life because he declared the gospel. You see, Paul wants to be obedient to God, and it's risky. In the words of Pastor John Piper, the Christian life is a call to risk. You either live with risk or you waste your life. How many of us sitting in this room at this very moment are wasting our lives because we think that the Christian life should be safe and cushy and calm? Now, while the faithful seek to obey regardless of the risk, the evil seek to destroy regardless of the cost. Look at the next couple of verses, 18 to 20. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. See, brothers, Joseph's brothers see him from afar, and they immediately conspire to kill him. They know they've got him 60 miles away from dad. They know that he is, is now a uh, fair game, basically. And why do they want to kill him? It's because of his dreams. Think about that. Who in the world gets ticked off about somebody else's dreams, especially to the point of deciding to kill them? Now, Someone who actually believes that the dream, or, or the answer to that is someone actually believes that the dream that the person had is more than the result of a late night of pizzas and Doritos, okay? That, that's, they, they, these guys actually believe the dream is from God. They know that it's from God. Deep in their hearts, they, they know that God was speaking through their brother, and they don't like what they heard. So they take the disdain for God and God's plans, and they decide to take it out on Joseph. And that helps explain people's hatred for Christians. You see, the reason that people hate Christians is because people hate the message. People hate the exclusivity of Christianity. 
They hate that the Bible says that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. That there is no way to get to God except through Jesus Christ. You're not going to find God any other way. People hate that exclusivity. They hate that the Bible pulls back the curtain on my sin and on your sin. They hate the idea of repentance. They, they hate the idea that they can't earn their way to God. People want to be in control. They want to set the rules. They want to set the standards. They want to set the way that they get to God. And when God comes along and says, that's not how it works, people hate that. And so they take their hatred out on the messenger in the same way that people in the first century hated Jesus' message and decided they needed to take him out. Now, in the midst of this hatred, a glimmer of hope actually shows up. Look at the next couple of verses. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued Joseph out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So here comes Reuben. Reuben's the oldest brother. He's the one who slept with his father's concubine and who has forfeited his birthright for a night of passion. Now, is that not amazing? The kinds of things that people will choose to lose for a night of forbidden passion. I see it all the time. I watch husbands throw away 20 years of marriage because they decided to sleep with a girl that works out with them at the gym, or works out at the gym. It's insane for a single stinking night of passion. Now, that's, I gotta, that's a sermon for another day. We'll that time. So Reuben, uh, who's clearly absent when the brothers initially come up with this plan, uh, he comes up with his own plan. He wants to figure out how to spare Joseph's life, while at the same time trying to appease his brother's hatred for him. So he says, let's not kill him. Let, let's just toss his body into the pit. Let the elements take it over. He'll die from exposure, basically. But his plan is ultimately that he's going to secretly come back. He's going to get him out of the pit, take him back to death. Now, who knows Reuben's motivation? Uh, maybe he sensed that because he's the older brother, that it's his responsibility to get his younger brother safely back home. Maybe he's trying to earn his way back into his father's good gracious. I, I mean, he slept with his father's concubine. That's caused a pretty big problem. So maybe if he saves his father's youngest son, that maybe that will solve things. But this is what I do know. I don't know what actually motivated him. But I know what didn't motivate him. And that was Joseph's best interest. If Reuben really cared about Joseph, what would he have done? He would have shut that bad boy down right then and there. He would have looked at his brothers and said, are you idiots out of your mind? We're not going to kill our brother. We're not going to leave him behind. We're, we're going we're to love on him. He's going to do his report, and he's going to go home, and he's going to tell Dad what's going on, and we're going to be absolutely fine with that. But that's not what Reuben does. Reuben wants to have it both ways. And how many of us are exactly like that. When we're confronted with a situation that demands our action, when there is a clear right and wrong, and in our cowardice, we only go halfway. When we don't fully stand up for what is right, when we don't take the risk to do the godly thing, knowing that others aren't going to like it, when we try to appease both sides, we are lukewarm. Remember what the Bible says about being lukewarm. It's in Revelation. Beginning of Revelation, there's a, a series of, 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 of brief letters that, that God writes to a number of churches that are in Asia Minor. One of, the, one of the churches that he writes to is the church in Laodicea. 
Laodicea was a city that was extremely wealthy, socially prominent, extremely proud of its self-sufficiency. Listen to what God says about this town through the words of the Apostle John. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. With that, you were neither cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, in God's economy, half-hearted commitment is no commitment at all. We can't please God and try to please others. As Christians, we are called to act fully, not worrying about the consequences, not trying to please everyone else. I'll give you a little example of this. A number of years ago, uh, when my son Mike was, was living at home, Mike uh, lives in Ecuador now, training pastors, but Mike was very interested in pastoral ministry, so I decided to take him on a, a Sunday afternoon to do a hospital visit. A good friend of mine, uh, uh, a fellow who's a, a, a local uh, funeral director, his wife, who I've uh, become very good friends with over the years, uh, his, his wife's name is Miss Dolly. She was in the hospital. And so Mikey and I went to visit Miss Dolly uh, in the hospital at Harrisburg. And uh, because I'm a pastor, they let us park where all the doctors park in that parking garage that's closest to the hospital. And so, but you got to like park in the very upper stages. I mean, this is like doctor parking, doctor parking, doctor parking, doctor parking. And then like three pastor parking things or whatever. But uh, so I always just go to the very top, and it's it's easier. Uh, so I'm always at the top floor. So Mike and I we go down the elevator. We go visit Miss Dolly. It's a, a great time. Uh, we come back out. We get in the elevator. The elevator pops out at, at the roof level. The doors open, and right in front of me, there is this man on top of a woman assaulting her. Mikey is like, his eyes are like, whoa! I'm like, I gotta get in on this, I gotta stop this. So I dive into the midst of this, I'm pulling the guy off of him. You know, I'm thinking I'm doing the right thing. And the guy's yelling, I'm security, I'm security, she's trying to jump off the roof. Wow. <laughs> she had escaped from the psych ward at the hospital, oh, and she was trying to kill herself. <laughs> and here I'm trying to, trying to, Help her, basically. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, folks, you know, we have to be all in. As Christians, you've got to be all in. You can't, there's no way that you can please God and please man. Forget trying. It's impossible. Go with pleasing God. And whatever the consequences are, let them be. Because God is good and he's faithful. Let's continue. Look at verses 23 and 24. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So Joseph meets up with his brothers, they jump him, they tear off his clothes, they throw him into the pit, but that's only half of the story. You see, there, there, there's some stuff that's going on here that, they, that we're not told in verse 37, because we find it out a little later in Genesis, in verse chapter 42, some 22 years after his brother is thrown into the, uh, that Joseph's thrown into the pit, because his, his brothers reflect on that day in chapter 42. And this is what they said. Then they, Joseph's brother, said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. You see, Joseph didn't go quietly into the pit. He went in the distress of his soul, pleading for his life, for his brothers to spare him. That, brothers and sisters, that is evil. That is evil unleashed. When you are throwing your blood into a pit, he is begging you not to do it. But it gets worse. 
Look at the next couple verses. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, and their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And then Midianite traders passed by. And basically, Midianites and Ishmaelites are, are synonymous with one another there. Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. You see, immediately after throwing him into the pit, while he is begging for his life from the bottom of the pit, these bums sit down and eat a meal. And that's disgusting. They're, they're chowing down on food, and their brother is right there screaming to be saved. See, their actions are nothing short of reprehensible. Now, in the midst of the, a meal, they, they notice that there's this caravan of Ishmaelites who are on their way to Egypt. And seeing the merchants, Judah, uh, brother number four, uh, gets the brilliant idea, why let this dude die in the pit? We can actually make some cash off of him. So they drag him out of the pit. They sell him for 20 shekels of silver, the equivalent of a price of a slave that day. It's about two years' wages of a common shepherd. Now, it's at this point that Reuben must not have been around. He must be wandering around, you know, he's kind of like he's got ADHD or something like that, you know, he just kind of disappears at the time. Reuben shows up at the pit. This is what happens. Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit. Tore his clothes, returned to his brother, and said, The boy is gone, I, where shall I go? And they took Joseph's robe, and they slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors, and brought it to their father, and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it, and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. And his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, Now shall I go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now notice how evil just keeps dishing out suffering. It just keeps, keeps heaping suffering on top of suffering on top of suffering. Joseph, is, he's suffering for all the reasons we've already talked about. Reuben is suffering as a result of his half-hearted attempt to save his brother. He says, the boy's gone, and where shall I go? Reuben had no idea the potential consequences of his sin. And then there's the suffering of Jacob. His sons return with Joseph's coat covered in blood, and they ask, is this your son's robe. They don't say, is this our brother's robe? This is like, you know, when Mike, John, and Nicole were misbehaving, and I would say to Kathy, you need to do something with your kids, right? You know, I'm not owning them, basically, right? They're, they're your problem. You know, when they behave, it's a product of my good work as a dad. When they misbehave, you've been a lousy mom, you know, it's your fault. And Jacob rends his garments, puts on sackcloth, and mourns for days. And what's totally disgusting is that his sons, the very ones who caused his suffering, were told they try to comfort him. That is crazy sick. And many of us get this. Many of us know the suffering that is a result of evil that has invaded our lives. Many of us know what it's like to be tossed into the pit by a parent, or a child, or a sibling, or a spouse. Many of us know what it's like to mess up, to play the Christian game, to be partly devoted to God and partly devoted to the world, 
and then discover it simply doesn't work that way. And still others know the unimaginable pain of losing someone or something that means so very much to us in the hands of evil. The suffering is hard. It seems like it will never end. And we begin to wonder, does anybody care? Does God care? Does he even give a rip about me right now? And if that describes you this morning, let me encourage you by telling you that verse 36 was written just for you. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now most of you are sitting out there saying, Mike, you have completely washed your mind. How in the world can I possibly find comfort that, that Joseph hasn't been sold just once? But he's actually been sold a second time. You are sick in the head, Mike. What in the world are you doing? Allow me to explain. You see, what verse 36 tells us is that God's goodness and purposes for Joseph's life and for our lives remains. You see, God has not abandoned Joseph. Instead, God is working out not only his plan for Joseph, but ultimately his plan for Joseph's family in the midst of unexpected, unspeakable evil. It's in Egypt where the story changes, folks. See, God knows what he's doing. God knows the entirety of the story. He knows the fullness of, of your story and my story completely. The only person who doesn't know the end of the story is us. We're the ones who don't know. So we're the ones who are stressed out, struggling. We can't figure it out. We're like, there is no hope here. The problem is we, we don't see the whole picture, but God sees the whole picture. And Egypt, Egypt is where things are going to change. You see, after he suffers uh, a little while longer in Egypt, and he's going to rise to great power. And he's going to make wise decisions that are a blessing to the people of Egypt and to his own family. You see, in Egypt, that's where all the suffering and evil that's afflicted in Joseph's life ultimately is going to make sense. See, God uses evil. He doesn't create evil, but he uses evil for his greater purposes and his glory. See, God could have created a world that was free of evil. He could have created a, a world that, that, that nothing could possibly go wrong. And he could have planted all of us humans in there. And we would be just a bunch of automatrons, a bunch of robots. But God didn't do that. Instead, God created a world where there was freedom, freedom to choose. Because brothers and sisters, forced love is not truly love. And God wanted people to be able to love him. And so he had to give them the choice not to love. So God gives us the freedom to obey, and because he gives us the freedom to obey, he gives us the freedom to disobey. He gives us the freedom to love, and because we have the freedom to love, we have the freedom to hate. He gives us the freedom to heal, and because we have the freedom to heal, we have the freedom to hurt. And that freedom comes at a price, and the price is suffering. Yet for as much as we see suffering as a bad thing, there is a very positive aspect to suffering. See, one of the things about God is God wants to be fully known. He wants, he wants all of us to, to see the fullness of all of his attributes. But in a perfect world, you can't see the fullness of all of God's attributes. You've got to be in a world where, where there is suffering and pain in order to see the fullness of who God is. Because without pain, 
we will never fully experience God's healing. And without sadness, we can never fully experience God's comfort. And without loss, we would never know that God is ultimately enough. And without rejection, we wouldn't know the beauty of being accepted by God. And that's why in Romans 8 we read these words. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We know that for those who, God, who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us with his Father in the midst of our suffering. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you are a child of God, when you have repented of your sins, when you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God takes the suffering, he takes the pain, he takes the evil, and he uses it for his greater glory and ultimately for your good. 17-year-old Joseph did not know that it would be in Egypt where God's great power and his provision for rescue would transform his life and transform the lives of his extended family. And 17-year-old Joseph didn't realize that one of his descendants would be Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who would suffer far beyond anything that he had suffered. And it would be through that suffering, suffering on the cross of Calvary, suffering that paid the debt for your sin and my sin, that salvation and freedom from sin would be secured. So I ask you this morning, if you are suffering, where is your Egypt? Perhaps you are in your, your Egypt right now. Perhaps God is, is, is at the cusp of, of, of changing things in your life. Now, when Joseph got to Egypt, there was more suffering. But in the end, God worked. Not the way that he expected, not the way that he anticipated, but God worked. And I'm here to tell you, that is what God does. God takes our suffering. And he uses it for his glory and our good. And I'm not promising you that your life is going to be wonderful, beautiful, marvelous, whatever. But I'm telling you that God will help you to make sense of what's going on. You may have lost a child. God's, he's not going to bring that kid back. Your marriage may have imploded. God may not restore that marriage. You have, may have made an incredibly sinful decision. The consequences might be huge. But God is not done with you. He will use you. And he will use you to bless others in the midst of your suffering. God is at work. Those who love him who are called according to his purposes. But here's the bummer of it all. If you don't love God, if you want nothing to do with him, you're on your own in the midst of your suffering. You're on your own. 
That's a horrible choice to make. He's not promising that he will work all things together for good for everyone. He works it together for good. For those who according to his And so I challenge you this morning. For those of you who have yet to confess your sin and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I challenge you this morning to cry out to him and say, God, show yourself. If you're really real, if this lunatic Italian with hardly any hair up here is even close to being right, show yourself. And he will do that. He will show you who he is and how beautiful he is and how he can transform your life and how he can take you from the domain of darkness and put you in the domain of light and give you hope in the midst of yourself. Because that's what he does. That's how God works. He takes ashes and turns it into beauty. He takes death and turns it into life. He takes despair and turns it into hope. He's on a rescue mission. God be the glory. And so here we are. Another day of the Lord's suffering. And so as we prepare to take these elements, may they be a reminder the cross of Calvary wasn't the end of the story. Jesus hanging there dead wasn't the end. And so as you, you prepare to, to take these bread, this unleavened bread, which represents Jesus' body that was stripped, his flesh stripped from his, his muscle by his executioners, and as you prepare to, to take the, the cup, the, the, the juice, the fruit of the vine, which represents his, his blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary, remember that, that he's not on the cross anymore. This is a reminder of victory over suffering. And be encouraged. Jesus is alive. If you're here today and you've yet receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, don't take these elements. They, they do you no good. These elements, just let them pass you by, and as they pass you by, call out to God and say, God, if you're real, speak in my heart. Show me. I believe he will do that. And I believe that he will bring conviction to your life. He brought conviction to my life. Because for years I sat as a, as a young man in a church and I took these elements and I didn't know diddly squat about Jesus. All I was doing was eating bread and drinking juice. I could have done that at home. One day God took my wretched tail end and showed me the ugliness of my sin. Showed me that I wasn't that good person that I thought I was. It showed me the beauty of Jesus. And my life has never been the same. There's been a lot of suffering in it, but He's never abandoned. So if you're here today and you've yet to make that profession, let these elements pass by. Pray for yourself. Pray God reveal yourself today. When He does respond. As we pass these elements out, if you could hold them, please. And